Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As we come to our passage in Mark chapter 14 this morning, a passage which traces the the weakness and the failing of the disciples here, a reminder for all of us of how desperately we must confess and need God's forgiveness. Over the, the last two weeks, if you've been with us, we've been following the events leading up to Jesus betrayal and arrest. We saw the chief priests and the scribes come to the firm decision, Jesus must be killed. We watched as Judas offered to betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies. We listened to Jesus announce to his disciples that he would be betrayed, and then we heard him declare that his body would be broken and his blood would be poured out for many. But this morning we arrive at the event itself. Jesus is betrayed and arrested, and His disciples flee. I want to read this together. We'll begin Mark chapter 14 and verse 26, and we'll read down through verse 52. Listen as we read God's Word. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered." But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Then they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came. And he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. and They did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you do not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Father, this is your word. Would you use your word in our hearts this morning to show us our need of Christ and draw us near to Christ? And we pray it for his sake. Amen. In 2012, Marina Keegan was a graduating senior at Yale University. And in graduation week, she wrote an article for the college newspaper. And in it, she discussed what she would miss about college and what she hoped for in her life ahead. And as she wrote that she could not think of just one word that summarized what she hoped for in life, but the best way to describe it was the opposite of loneliness. She wrote, this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people, who are in this together, who are on your team, when the check is paid and you stay at the table, that night with the guitar, that time we did, we went, we saw, we laughed, we felt she wrote. This is what I want. I found this a beautiful description of God's intent for us, for community, for fellowship with one another, for the mutual joy and strength and comfort that comes in life from being in it together. And I read Marina Keegan's words on Wednesday, just as I had read and was meditating on this passage, and it made the increasing isolation and loneliness of Jesus in this passage jump off the page. And I thought in a way that I hadn't really thought before about this aspect of Jesus' suffering. As his disciples reject and protest his words, then they fall asleep during his agony. Then one of them betrays him with mock affection. And then they all abandon him, leaving him alone to drink the cup of his father's wrath. These verses this morning, they draw our focus to the weakness and the failing and the, the scattering of everyone around Jesus, which leaves him utterly alone. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. So just to give you an idea of of where we're headed, we're going to look at the scattering of Jesus' sheep foretold, then we're going to look at the scattering of the sheep foreshadowed, and then we're going to look at the scattering of the sheep fulfilled. So that's our game plan. Let's start with verses 26 to 31, where we see the scattering of the sheep foretold. Jesus and his disciples have just finished that last supper, a meal in which Jesus dropped this announcement that one of them would betray him. And some of you have probably been at a dinner before where someone just makes a bombshell announcement. They announce something that no one would have ever thought. And you know how that when that happens, the dinner might go on, the the dinner might wrap up and you might move on to the next thing, but your mind is still stuck on that announcement and you can't get past it. And I have to think that the disciples were in that spot here. Yeah, the dinner went on. Yes, they wrapped that up. Now they're on their way from the upper room to uh, the Mount of Olives. But I just picture them thinking over these words. Maybe, maybe in small groups in the back of the group, whispering, what, what in the world? What does this mean? And in that moment, Jesus makes another announcement. All of you will abandon me. All of you will fall away. 
Now that broadens the accusation, doesn't it? That goes from one of you will betray me to all of you will fall away. And if you put yourselves in the disciples' shoes, that goes from which one of those blockheads is going to do it to me? I am going to fall away? And I can only imagine how impossible, maybe even insulting that felt to them in the moment. But will you look at what proof Jesus offers for his statement here? First, Jesus offers his own prophetic word. Now, the disciples have been with Jesus for three years. And when has one single word that Jesus has uttered ever failed to come true? And here is Jesus With a word, he has healed the sick. With a word, he stopped storms. With a word, he raised the dead. They're just a few days from when Jesus told them where to find a donkey and what would happen when they got to the donkey. And just the day before, they said, well, where should we prepare the supper? And he told them exactly how the events would unfold and where to find it. And Mark has told us over and over, everything happened just as he said. He's been hailed by a prophet, or by everyone as a prophet. Peter has called him the Christ, the Son of the living of God. And so doesn't that add pretty significant weight to Jesus' words when he looks at them and says to them, all of you will fall away? And if Jesus' word wasn't enough, then Jesus goes and adds the Scriptures as a second added authority to his warning. He quotes Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. As it is written, there are those words that are supposed to, they they repeatedly add authority to what Jesus is saying. As it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus points the disciples to God's own prophecy, his own word, confirming what Jesus has just said, that when he is struck, the sheep will be scattered. And so Jesus issues this warning here with the strength of his own word and God's word in the scriptures. And it would certainly seem that the disciples have every reason to believe what Jesus tells them. And yet, in the face of Jesus' word and God's word, you don't see any sort of pause like, hmm, how is this going to happen? You see immediate protest from Peter. Even if they all fall away, I will not fall away. You hear the pride in that statement, don't you? But I want us to to see, of course, Jesus, he looks at Peter after Peter makes this statement, and he says, actually, Peter, you're going to do more than fall away. This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me. Not once and not twice, three times. I often wonder what was written on Jesus' face? What was the nonverbal? What was the facial expression when Jesus said this? Was it sadness? Was it a wry smile at the irony of Peter's statement? Was it compassion? Was it a grimace at the deception of sin? We don't know, of course, but we can tell the vehemence with which Peter denies this yet again. He says, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. And Mark tells us it wasn't just Peter. They all said the same. Even if it comes to death, Jesus, we will never deny you. I think God is giving us here a clear warning about the deceitfulness of sin. Based on the authority of Christ's word in the scriptures, the, the disciples would do well to heed this warning Jesus has given them. But instead, 
Peter's assessment of himself and his felt loyalty to Jesus lead him to discount both the Scriptures and Jesus' Word. Does that sound familiar? Christ says one thing, but we are confident in the opposite. God's Word tells us something, but we feel so deeply that the opposite must be true. And because of the way we feel, the Scriptures feel uncredible to us. And aren't we told all around us that certainly the way we feel right now must be more reliable than a book written 2,000 years ago? See, we're in danger of the same thing that trapped Peter and the disciples here. Pride, of course, did go before the fall here. This self-assessment, this deceitfulness and arrogance of the disciples led to sin and to disaster. And so warning number one for us this morning is to be careful of this example which demonstrate that God's Word and Christ's Word are true and reliable and trustworthy. What Jesus says will happen. And our feelings, our self-assessments, our self-assurances are not. But note these verses also begin to describe the suffering of Jesus. Have you ever been in a situation where you say something that is true, but immediately everybody around you says, oh, that can't be true. And they protest what you said. They deny what you said. Maybe they even make fun of you for what you've said. And if you've been in that situation, you know how lonely it feels when you're saying something true and everyone else is denying it or mocking it. And so it must have been for Jesus as the abandonment and the aloneness that he experiences begins even then. Well, this is the scattering of the sheep foretold, but I want to move on to verses 32 to 42 now, where we see the scattering of the sheep foreshadowed. Now, when I say that the scattering of the sheep is foreshadowed, what I mean is that the events of these verses lay the groundwork for us. That lead to the disciples' failure. When we read what happens here, we will not be surprised by the disciples' failure in the following verses. See, in verse 32, we read that the group arrives at Gethsemane, and Jesus says, I must pray. He takes Peter, James, and John with him, but with each step, he is more and more overwhelmed by the weight of his distress. Mark says he was distressed greatly and troubled. In fact, Jesus describes his anguish with the words, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And we get a glimpse of the dread that lies on him when he cries out to his father, Abba, Father, remove this cup with me. We get a a glimpse of the agony and the weight that lies on Jesus. We also get a glimpse in these words of what the church has very carefully but very clearly taught about the person of Jesus Once again, we see Jesus here as both fully God and fully man. His divine nature, fully divine, but also fully human. And the church, as they've described the person of Jesus, has said he's fully God, he's fully man, and these two natures are not intermixed or fused, as if he would have some sort of deified human nature, but nor do they remain separate, as if his soul was divine, but his body was human. No, he is fully human, and fully divine. But in in claiming this and in seeing this, the church has always noted that at times Jesus' divine nature is particularly clear, and other times his human nature 
is particularly evident. You might think of the calming of the storm where his divine nature is particularly evident. Well, here in the garden, Jesus' human nature is particularly evident. It is his human nature that suffers this agony, his human nature that sweats drops of blood, his human nature that cries out to the Father, if possible, remove this cup from me. And we see him as fully human, suffering on our behalf. But of course, you know, it was also his human nature that then added, yet not what I will, but what you will. And many have commented that here in that statement is the crux of our redemption. Yes, Jesus gave his body for us on the cross, but here he gave his will and expressed his willingness to redeem us even at the cost of his life. And here it is also that Jesus sets for us the greatest example of what it means to trust God and to follow him. It doesn't just mean, well, we give 10% of our income or a few hours on the weekend or I turn away from this sin. All of that is the fruit of it, yes. But the crux of what it means to trust and to follow our God is to give up our wills so that we are His, to do and to be called wherever and through whatever He might ask us to go. It is, as Paul put it in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 15, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. That is the example Christ sets of what it means to trust and follow Him. But we know, don't we, that as long as we live in this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil will fight against us and will seek to lure us into sin and complacency. And that danger is on bold display here in these verses, in the disciples' actions. Do you notice how the foreshadowing of trouble builds verse by verse here? Verse 34, Jesus says, remain here and watch. Verse 38 he found them sleeping. And then again, he says to them even more strongly, watch, pray that you may not enter temptation. And again, he finds them sleeping. A third time he went away, but again, he came and found them sleeping. Now just stop and think for a second. Put yourselves in the disciples' shoes. It has only been a matter of a few hours. And Jesus has told them, one of you will betray me. One of you will deny me three times tonight. All of you will fall away from me. Pray because you're going to fall into temptation if you don't watch and pray. How many warnings has Jesus given them in a matter of a few hours? And yet they sleep, which is the opposite of watching and praying. Now, I I realize it was late at night here. The disciples are pulling an all-nighter. I understand that they were tired. But it is not as if they would have obeyed if they had just had more coffee on hand. The issue is not the issue of caffeine. Because you know how it is. If you are faced with an acute danger, or if you have been told devastating news that weighs you down, you can't sleep. Your mind races. You are weighed down by the reality in front of you, and it keeps you awake. And and I would suggest that 
the sleep of the disciples is an indication of how lightly they took Jesus' warnings. As these warnings and the disciples' sleepiness pile up, we begin to anticipate their coming failure. And we also see another layer to the isolation of Jesus. Few things are as lonely as looking around and watching everyone around you peacefully sleeping while you can't sleep, crushed in grief and despair, especially when you'd ask them to stay awake and pray with you. But I want you to notice how Scripture is giving us another warning here in the examples of the disciples. This past year, a, a member of our church gave me a, a fun read entitled The Man-Eaters of Cuman. It contains the autobiographical tales of Jim Corbett in the early 1900s as he was called by various districts of Nepal to hunt and kill man-eating tigers that were terrorizing their villages. And he would share how he was tracking these tigers who had killed dozens, sometimes hundreds of men, some of the most significant and dangerous killers on the planet, and he's tracking them through forests and through ravines and through chest-high grasses, and these tigers could be anywhere. And it wasn't just the tigers, because Corbett would all often say things like, well, while I was tracking the tiger, I killed a 10-foot snake. And, and you suddenly realize, you know, he's got snakes un- underneath him and tigers around him, and there's deadly perils all around. And at one point, Corbett said something like this. He said, I had to leave after several days, as it may be difficult for many readers to imagine the toll the almost constant heightened state of alert day and night takes on the body and the mind. Can you imagine the watchfulness and the toll that that takes? But Jesus just told the disciples that something worse than a man-eating tiger was on their trail. That that very night, Satan would tempt every one of them to abandon and deny the Son of God. In fact, if you think that the image of a man-eating tiger is a little overly dramatic, it's actually the exact image Scripture uses to describe Satan's efforts to tempt us to sin. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. There's Jesus' words again, right? Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so I think the question for us this morning really is, do we take seriously Scripture's warning about the danger of temptation? And if so, is it evident in our watchfulness and our prayerfulness that we might not be taken? After all, Jesus tells us how we should respond. He doesn't just say, there's a lion on your trail, good luck. No, he says, watch and pray. We are to be constantly aware that sin and temptation may leap on us, that our own desires of the flesh may surge up in us, and we are to diligently strap on the armor of God. And you think about that description of the armor of God that Paul gives us in Ephesians 6 and the faith and hope and the Word of God and the good news of the gospel that we are to surround ourselves with. But after describing that armor, what does Paul say? He ends by saying, and praying all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Because prayer is our strength and our aid. Prayer calls upon the one who is greater than us the one who is promised to hear and to answer. Prayer is our expression of dependence upon the Lord and trusting Him 
and communing with him in the midst of our danger. And so God gives us the path out to watch and pray. But the disciples did neither. They slept. And what I would, what I would like to propose to each of us this morning is that that's the danger for us as well. If the first paragraph in our text warned us about spiritual pride and trusting our own feelings and self-assessments over the Word of God, this second paragraph warns us of the danger of spiritual apathy. About 20 years ago, R.R. Reno published a short article in First Things entitled, Fighting the Noonday Devil. And in this, he noted that the church for the last several centuries has put a strong emphasis on the sin of pride. And he said, certainly, pride is a great danger to us. But, he said, earlier in the church's history, many argued that there was a greater danger to believers than pride. And the greater danger, they thought, threatened every believer was spiritual apathy. They called it the noonday demon. You know that sleepiness and sluggishness that comes right after lunch and the warmth of the afternoon? That's what these writers were talking about in the church when they talked about the noonday demon. And this apathy involved spiritual laziness. But it went more than just spiritual laziness. They described it as a dullness or a sleepiness of the soul, which made spiritual discipline or the striving after holiness that God calls us to in His Word seem unnecessary. They said spiritual apathy is expressed with things like this. God loves us. God's grace is abundance. We're decent people. So why get so worked up or extreme about pursuing righteousness? Or it says things like, prayer doesn't really change things. God's going to do what God's going to do. He doesn't care whether I pray about it or not. Or it says, all is well. I don't need to examine myself. I'm not a criminal. I'll be just fine before God. And the argument of these church fathers was that many of us will not fall into sin by high-handed wickedness, but by falling asleep, failing to watch, and forgetting to pray, so that we slide into worldliness, sin, and folly, just like the disciples do here. And it's this sleep that foreshadows their scattering to come. So we've seen the scattering foretold and the warning against spiritual pride. We've seen the scattering foreshadowed and the warning against spiritual apathy, but it all comes to fruition in verses 43 to 52 where we see the scattering fulfilled. Judas comes onto the scene and completes his act of betrayal with disgusting impunity. Mark describes it in in stark terms. You notice there he says that Judas went up to him at once, There was no hesitation, no shame in his approach. And he called Jesus rabbi. That's that greeting that one would give to one who is worthy of your honor and respect. And then it says he kissed him. But the Greek there doesn't use the normal word for kiss. It uses a word for a kiss with great affection. And so we see that Judas, in other words, is making a deep show of devotion out of his act of utter betrayal. And immediately they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Verse 47, I think, is is the verse of greatest irony, comic irony in this passage. As you see someone come to Jesus' defense 
and he whips out his sword and charges into the scene and says, Jesus, I'll take care of this. And he swings and nicks off a piece of a guy's ear. Very effective. John's gospel tells us it was Peter who did this. Not a good night for Peter so far. Perhaps Peter thought this was the moment he was going to prove that he would be willing to die with Jesus. But surely Peter assumed that Jesus would join him in the fray and that Jesus was going to be victorious even if Peter died in the defense. Instead, Jesus told him to put the sword away and he surrendered himself to this mob. And suddenly, the disciples are filled with fear. They've been with Jesus for three years. No one has seemed to be able to lay a finger on him. And yet now, this group has arrested Jesus and is marching him away. And now, the 11 disciples in the garden, his closest associates, also feel at risk of being arrested and led away with Jesus. And that fear overwhelms them. And the very group has proclaimed that they would never abandon him, flees And Jesus is left all alone to bear the brunt of his Father's wrath against our sin by himself. Now Mark is the only gospel to include this little vignette at the end, verses 51 and 52, about the young man fleeing naked. And there's plenty of speculation about this event. It's rather, rather, uh, you know, surprising. And so we wonder, who is this guy? Is it one of the twelve? Is it someone else who's been following Jesus? Is this Mark himself? There's plenty of discussion, but any answer is just that, speculation. We don't know. But I think these two verses are quite important for us. They show us both the emotion of the moment and the significance of the moment. On the one hand, they show us the emotion that the disciples felt. This wasn't just some sort of slightly concerning turn of events. They weren't a little bit anxious about what might happen. No, the terror of this moment is such that this guy would rather twist out of his clothes and flee naked than be caught with Jesus. That's the mindset of the disciples here. And not only is this describing the desperation of his disciples as they all fled from him and abandoned him, but of course we know that nakedness is a sign of shame. And I think that the nakedness of this young man is a vivid picture of the shame that covers Jesus' disciples, who so quickly, after their dogmatic assertions of loyalty, abandon him so completely. And I don't want you to miss that this story about Jesus' arrest ends after taking all that it says about Jesus' disciples and their failures and weaknesses with the word naked. That describes the shame of the sin of their abandonment of Jesus. And so we come to the end of verse 52 and Jesus' words are perfectly fulfilled. The shepherd has been struck and the sheep are scattered, just as he said. The weakness and the failure and the sin of the disciples and their pride and their apathy and their fear leave Jesus all alone his words not believed, his distress not noticed, betrayed by one of the twelve with mock affection and abandoned by all those closest to him. I have to think, if you were one of the disciples, and it was Saturday afternoon after Jesus was crucified, and you thought back over these events, that the weight of their guilt and their shame would be crushing. But I want to end by asking you to look back to one small detail that I skipped over. It's in verse 28. In verse 28, having just foretold the scattering of the disciples, which then comes about, Jesus drops a hint 
that the scattering of the sheep would not just be foretold and foreshadowed and fulfilled, but the scattering of the sheep would also be forgiven. You see what Jesus says? He doesn't say, and after I'm raised up, I'm going to deal with you miserable cowards. No, he says, and after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I will meet you in Galilee. In other words, yes, you will all abandon me, but after I am raised up, I will meet you again as brothers. And I think these words are a gracious promise told ahead of time as a hint of the power of the cross, a hint that Jesus intends to redeem them from their sins and sanctify them by the power of the Spirit and welcome them back into fellowship with Him forever. And if the disciples had reviewed those words on Saturday afternoon after the crucifixion, it would have been the hint of the hope they needed. And so it is for each of us. Faced with our sins of pride, our sins of apathy, our sins of fear, or all the other sins that are later on our account, this is the promise and the hint that we need too to remind us of the abundant grace and mercy of our Savior who knew all of our failings ahead of time, but who gave himself on the cross that we might be redeemed from all of them that he might welcome us back into his presence with joy if we might turn and look to him in faith and follow him. And that is the invitation for all of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, I would thank you for this passage of your word. And I pray this morning that each of us would be warned of the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, would you use this passage to keep us from self-reliance, from spiritual pride that doubts your word? Would you use this passage to keep us from spiritual apathy, laziness, and sleepiness in the face of sin and temptation? Would you use this passage then to draw us to Christ, to remind us of his grace and his mercy, all that he did on the cross, and the promise to meet us, to welcome us, if we will repent and come to him in faith. Would that encourage our hearts this morning, Lord? If there's anyone here, maybe who's heard this hundreds of times, but has not given themselves to Christ, would they do so this morning? And Father, for all of us who have put our faith in you, would this strengthen our assurance of your grace and mercy, of our redemption in you, that you might receive all the glory. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.